Magazines and Monsters, Episode 1. Hammer Films, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. Hey everybody, welcome to Magazines and Monsters, Episode 1. As you heard in the intro, we're going to be talking about Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, the Hammer film from 1968. Um, there were not too many candidates that I would even consider for having as my first guest host. Um, as many of you know, there's a small group of people on Twitter that I interact with and are just fantastic people. Uh, whether it's comic books or films or just everyday stuff, we have a good time on there. And the guy at the top of that list is the host of the Long Box of Darkness and my co-host on Into the Weird, Mr. Herman Lowe. How are you, buddy? I believe you flatter me, really. Undeserved <laughs> praise that you, you know, um, uh, that you give to me over there. Really, that's that's great hearing that from you. So thanks, and thanks for having me on the show. I'm very excited. Well, when we talk about comics, you know, we can go on for hours and hours about that. But then when we both found out, oh, we both really love Hammer Studios films. That was when I thought, yep. It's got to be one of my favorite films, and it's going to have to be you and I talking about it for sure. That's right. I mean, the listeners might not know this. Uh, we've never even mentioned this on Twitter, but but you and I sort of, we met on Twitter, but then we also joined this group on Facebook, um, the United Nations of Horror. And mm -hmm. uh, that's where I realized that you are a big Hammer fan, and I'm a huge Hammer fan. That's my favorite studio of all time. Um, so, you know, we've also got that in common. So we've got this whole separate universe that we're sometimes discussing, you know, totally separate from the comic books that we normally talk about on Twitter. But every now and then a bit of hammer discussions creep in, right, Billy? On Twitter, I mm -hmm. mean. So, yeah. yeah, that's our two big loves, I think, uh, that we share, I mean, uh, comic books and then, of course, um, the films of Hammer Studios. Yeah, Hammer Films to me, I mean, I first grew up uh, look, look, watching the Universal films when I was very young, uh, and I thought they were cool, but when I was just a little bit older, like maybe pre-teenage years, uh, I discovered Hammer, and to me, that was it. I have never uh, felt as strongly about films from any other studio ever since and i can go back and watch these movies time after time and they never get old i'm never bored they're always entertaining uh they're just to me they made with a lower budget they made top-notch horror films that really i think stand the test of time um what's uh, your personal uh story with hammer herman well we didn't have any late night hammer screenings in the late 70s uh, you know, when I started watching TV, we did have a lot of Bond films, but no mm. horror per se. So I had to discover Hammer through the video stores uh, when there were still Betamax tapes around. And, <laughs> you know, eventually it transitioned into VHS. And so I was trolling the video stores of our small town in South Africa, maybe around 1982, 1983. And um, I always saw these hammer uh videos these the covers stood out to me but not because they were the painted covers that you found on the posters that they had in the 60s and and in the 70s um in britain you know for the movies but um they were just literally stills taken from shots of the film you know so you'll have 
an actual, mm. uh, you know, cover on one of these tapes um, looking like just Dracula, you know, uh, bending over a girl, you know, ready to, to chomp her, <laughs> to bite her neck. So <laughs> it was basically weird covers, but uh, because it showed you something of what you're going to see when you, you're going to be watching the movie, I was fascinated and I wanted to see them. However, I could never rent them because I was a little kid of, of eight years old. So eventually I saw my first Hammer movie when I was staying over at a friend's house and his older brother had to take care of us. So he took us to, you know, the video store and we rented a couple of things. And I, uh, my friend and I, we both rented horror because the older brother allowed it. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> the year before we had seen Halloween on this, uh, you know, older kids watch. <laughs> oh, John good, Carpenter's good, Halloween. Good. Yeah, oh, so I... I got about, uh, I think I only got, the first time around, I only got one Hammer film, and that was my first one, The Satanic Rites of Dracula. <laughs> now, that's widely believed to be the worst Dracula film. The last one, of course, that Christopher Lee did for Hammer Studios, but, you know, I loved it. It, it was so taboo because, number one, it dealt with Satan, and Satan was a big no-no in South African <laughs> culture back then. Um, but also not because I was a Satanist. I was just interested in things that were, you know, not allowed. And, you know, I, I was a, a bit of a transgressive <laughs> as a kid. I wanted to, you know, the horror stuff were normally the things you weren't allowed to watch. So I was into horror. So I rented that and I liked it. And then um, I went back and uh, every time I was able to, um, when I was on my own, I rented, you know, the other Dracula Hammer movie, starting with probably the first one, Dracula, and then Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And then um, the one that we're going to be discussing now, which is the, the third in the Dracula series of Hammer, I only got to see much later because it wasn't available in that video store, Billy. So I probably oh, wow. saw it in the mid 80s or early, uh, early 90s. I can't really remember, but it was also a rental. You know, I had to rent it from a video store. So um, I've been a fan of Hammer ever since. I mean, obviously, Dracula got me into Hammer. But after that first uh, foray um, into Hammer with the Satanic Rites of Dracula, I, you know, rented all the Hammer films I could find. And they had quite a bunch, at least 20 or so. And I must have rented all of them twice, at least, by the, by the time that I was 14. So I was a huge Hammer fan, even from, you know, uh, an early age. Yeah, and I've never actually lost my fascination or my love for the studio and, and all the films they made. So, yeah, that's my abbreviated history. I could go into some more details, but I won't bore you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I love to hear that kind of stuff. Origin stories for comic books and, and films, you know, the genres that people love. Oh, I, I love hearing that. Those are fantastic. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, Billy. So why don't we take a real quick look at uh, the production side here. So I know you and I have talked to about how the director of this film, Freddie Francis, this was uh, one of his first attempts, if not his first attempts at directing. And there's a little bit of a story behind that. Is there not? Um, yeah, well, I mean, uh, Terrence Fisher is normally the guy that, well, he did the first two Dracula movies. And mm -hmm. he's uh, someone who has a real feel for I think horror and horror on film he, he's good at creating mood setting the stage for a horrific kind of ambiance but um, he didn't do this movie 
uh, Freddie Francis did. So uh, that that I mean, the reason why I think Billy, you you'd probably be able to explain it better to the listeners since you you're the one who actually told me about it in the first place. <laughs> it was news to me. Yeah, but um, yeah, I believe it's it was quite a motor disturbing. vehicle accident. Yeah. yeah, a motor vehicle accident. He had been in and and couldn't do it. You know, I don't know. He did. It wasn't life threatening, I don't believe, but it was bad enough that he wasn't going to be able to do the film. And you know, back then when you were trying to pump out movies and, you know, reuse sets and get, you know, everything set up, there's, there's a certain timing to it. So, you know, if they're starting production on a certain day and it's going to be two, three, four weeks later till somebody else can do it, somebody else just steps right in. That's just the way they roll. That's right. And, you know, fans of Hammer are of two minds about this, Billy. Some fans say that this was a good thing that Terrence Fisher was replaced because in fact, this movie, Dracula has risen from the grave turned out to be the biggest box office success or the biggest financial success for Hammer Studios. Correct. Um, and then, you know, other people say, no, I mean, you could see that this movie is the lesser of the preceding two movies, um, which mm -hmm. was Dracula and Dracula Prince of Darkness directed by Terrence Fisher. So there are people who are, you know, sort of vacillating between is, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing that Fisher didn't direct? I myself think, you know, I, I like the way it, uh, it, um, you know, it worked out because Freddie Francis, he's really a guy who focuses or he, in his own words, he enjoys directing, you know, couples, you know, relationships between people and uh, a story uh, that's often romantic and, and focuses more on dialogue between human beings. So, you know, he's on record as saying that Dracula for him was not interesting, the character of Dracula. He was more like, you know, a red herring or a fly in the ointment. He preferred the relationship in this movie between um, the two main characters who are also sort of the victims of Dracula's revenge. And, um, you know, I can, I think because of that approach that he took, it made the movie actually even better because when horrific things then do happen to the two main human protagonists it's more terrifying because you you've already gotten to like them i, I don't know what you think about that billy what, what do you think about yeah. the, the fact that francis ended up <laughs> making this movie yeah i mean to me don't get me wrong uh terence fisher i think he's the best director hammer ever had and to me it's not even close agreed but i will i will say when you have somebody uh you know that's the the, the established guy that's been there for a long time it's just human nature that sometimes you would feel a little like, well, you know, I'm going to do my best at this movie, but it's not that you feel, you know, there, sometimes you can lose your motivation, you know, for doing things. Whereas you bring in this young upstart of a guy and it's his first chance, you know, he, he's going to really put everything he has into it. And he's also going to take some risks as well because he has nothing to lose. You know, what's he'll just be back behind the camera again if this didn't turn out so well, which I think would have been fine by him as well because I think, you know, that's where he started out being a cameraman. I think he loved it. So, you know, I think that's that's kind of how I look at it. That it's like I said, love Terrence Fisher, but it, having a, a, this young upstart, if you will, uh, come in here was probably a good thing for Hammer. Yeah, you see, the thing with, with Francis was, um, you're right about him being a cameraman, but before this movie actually did direct, I think it was The Little Shop of Horrors, which is mm. one of my least favorite Hammer horror films. But, um, you know, uh, then for some reason, some folks um, on the production side, it could even have been Jimmy Carreras, he liked what Francis did, and then he decided to put him on Dracula's Risen from the Grave. So I, 
as a as a producer or or you know one of the guys in, on the business side of things, I wouldn't have made that decision because I personally didn't like Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, but you can definitely see his camera work uh, coming through strongly in in this movie, right? Dracula's Risen from the Grave, Billy, because there are some awesome shots. Uh, of characters interacting and then there's some great shots of action scenes as well especially the rooftop scenes where which we'll mm. be talking about later so you know there's yeah. he definitely brought some of his skill to this movie but i think the reason why this movie did so well financially was because of you know the the characters interacting with each other you've got paul and maria and of course then you've got the the character of xena the barmaid mm-hmm. and and there's this type of uh you know dynamic between them almost like a lover's triangle but not quite and then dracula enters <laughs> the lover's triangle and then paul's pushed pushed aside and it's maria and xena and uh, and then of course you've got the excellent dialogue um and and comedy aspect of the the film from you know um the character of max you know who's played by mm-hmm. one of our favorite hammer actors and uh, in fact our favorite british act one of our favorite british actors uh michael ripper right billy so mm-hmm. i love him yeah, all of that's, you know, thanks to Freddie Francis's directing, I think. You know, so I am I think he did a good job. That's just my personal opinion. Of course, Terrence Fisher would have probably produced a superior horror uh, movie. But this movie was horror, but also had aspects of comedy and of drama that Terrence Fisher sometimes didn't, I, I'm not going to say didn't have, but didn't focus on that much. Yeah, you definitely saw it from a different, you know, a view, different view here, and which is that's never a bad thing when you have anything uh, in, you know, film or music or just everyday life. It's it's always good to, you know, take a look at something from a different angle. And that's what I think they got with Freddie Francis. But um, I mean, he had a, a nice cast here. I mean, Christopher Lee, of course, as Dracula. Uh, how he, the, He's the best Dracula ever. To me, there's no... There's no contest there. He's the best. He's menacing. He's scary. He's, you know, kind of a ladies' man <laughs> agreed, <laughs> as agreed, well. Agreed. <laughs> um, we had uh, Rupert Davies um, as the, you know, let's say the Peter Cushing type character for part of the movie, at least anyway, here, you know, because there was no Cushing in this movie, which, you know, isn't, you know, I would have preferred him, but Rupert Davies did a pretty good job until, you know, his uh, exit from the movie <laughs> we'll oh, get yeah. talk about in a little bit <laughs> but i think he did a pretty good job i i think he was pretty good you know as the you know the uh protagonist there early on and yeah then uh you know barbara ewing uh veronica carlson i mean well that's my uh she's my number one she's she's it herman i'm telling you right now i might just uh after we're done recording here hop on a plane to the uk and uh <laughs> go uh el- Ooh, the her, lady I'm telling you Woo, the Oof, lady. Man. Veronica Carlson. <laughs> Woo, no, I'm she, telling you. She's amazing. No, I, I agree. <laughs> um, you know, I there are so many Hammer ladies that I love, and I'm, I'm using that word conservatively, but uh, I, I really dig a lot of the actresses, not just obviously for their looks, but for their mm-hmm. acting skills as well. And that, that sounds strange, Billy, because normally people think, oh, Hammer ladies, cheesecake. But it's not always the case. If you think about this, for instance, this role, where Veronica Carlson plays Maria, she's a very demure kind of lady in this, um, and that is where her attraction lies. It's because mm-hmm. she portrays this this feeling of of, of innocence that's being threatened, and right. um, you know uh, this this sense of class and elegance. She um, you know conveys that perfectly. But in 
in roles following this movie, because this is basically her first starring role, she could do many different kinds of, of personas. You know, she could do someone who's a little bit lascivious. She could do someone who's, who's um, you know, more of a go-getter. She could do vampire hunter. She, she's very, I think, um, she's able to adapt, you know, to the roles given to her, even if they're not in the mm-hmm. same mold. But this role was my introduction to her as well. I think I, I might have seen her in other Hammer movies before I watched this movie, but I didn't really, you know, uh, this this is the role that, that made her name stand out to me. You know, this is where I first knew she was Veronica Carlson. Because when I was a kid, Billy, I don't know if you were like this, when you watched movies, the actors' names didn't matter to me. The characters' names mattered to me. You know, so right. when I was like eight years old and I would see Christopher Lee, I would say, oh, he's Dracula. You know, that's Dracula. I wouldn't say yep. that's Christopher Lee. Uh, but, you know, the switch happened for me with Lee when, you know, I saw him in The Man with the Golden Gun. You know, then, mm. then I realized, oh, wait a minute, that's Dracula, but he's he's Scaramanga. So, okay, what do I call him? <laughs> so I, I went to Christopher <laughs> Lee from then on. And then Peter Cushing followed and Vincent Price and so forth. But before that, when I was a kid, I didn't really notice the actors' names, you know. But then, yeah. you know, this this is the movie that made me notice. This is Veronica Carlson, and I want to watch everything she's in. Um, I want to I want to look for movies with her name name on it, and I want to rent those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it was probably yeah. not until I was a teenager where I was interested in, you know, well, okay, who was the, the or who are the actors and actresses, and who was the actual director and producer and who wrote this and all that kind of stuff too i I wasn't really like you said concerned about that stuff beforehand it was just an entertainment thing and that's it yeah but um you know billy i think uh veronica carlson though um you know i've recently seen a photo of her and she still looks really attractive for an older lady you know she's Mm -hmm. very old now but she still has that same sense of um uh confidence or you know she exudes a, a bit of um yeah, now confidence, I should say. Um, and yeah. um, that's very attractive to me in ladies, more so than whether you see, you know, uh, you know, bits of skin or anything like that. There is a bit of that here, you know, when, when Dracula's menacing her and especially on, on the part of the Xena character. But, you know, that's never really been my thing. You know, I'm more of, yeah. you know, does she exude a, a type of, um, you know, pheromone that you can sort of... Uh, you know, be affected by through the screen. <laughs> and Veronica yeah. Carlson, you know, she has that in spades, I think. So, um, yeah, it's it's her personality more than her looks, but also her looks. You know, she's a striking, striking lady. Yeah, she's, like you said, she's a very attractive lady, but she also does her job very well on screen. And the camera, you know, when the camera's on her, it just, you know, lights up the entire scene it's not just uh, about looks it's definitely about her abilities too i mean obviously she wasn't asked to do a a ton other than be you know uh you know a a pretty girl and you know the the one that you know kind of stress yeah yeah, in in between dracula and you know her her boyfriend but still she she did a really good job and did everything that was asked of her you know what i mean and it's just i don't know like i said i'll watch like you said too you see something with her picture on it you're gonna watch it because you know, yeah, she's a good-looking lady, but you know she's going to do a good job, too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, you know, but but like you say, it's it's strange, Billy, that um, this the cast of characters here, the cast that they got, that Jimmy Guerrero's put together, it didn't have Peter Cushing, and yet this was their most successful movie. I mean, you would have thought that Christopher Lee and Cushing together would have 
uh, you know, uh, produced a blockbuster hit that would have, you know, eclipsed the the money earned by this film. And yet, mm-hmm. Cushing wasn't in this, which is very, very strange. Yeah, it's. I mean, you figure by 1968, these guys were um, not just exclusively Hammer; they were bopping around at some different studios, some Amicus, and some other smaller studios as well, doing a lot of the horror stuff. So, yeah. between Lee, Lee and Cushing, that's how you were. You know. You were definitely getting. Uh, sometimes they weren't available for certain things, and that's just the way it was. You know, they were doing other things, and that's hey, good on them because they were making more money. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they were very successful at this point in time in their own personal lives, but I think they still championed Hammer Studios because I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Queen's Award um, was awarded to Hammer for uh, right after this film because I think that only happens if you. If if your cultural products have been exported from the UK to, you know, internationally, and then you make a lot of money. So apparently, Hammer Studios had been made more than three million pounds, right, Billy, for mm-hmm. for England at this point in time. So they were honored with the Queen's Award for export achievements. I think that's the name of the award. And because of that, you know, Lee championed Hammer Studios, and and he blasted all the Hammer critics up until that point that that the studio had had, saying that, you know. Um, I don't I recall his exact words, but he said something like that, you know, their films are among the most popular films in the world and people should start to show them more respect. Something to that effect, you know. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm happy that happened for them back then because that was like 10, what, uh, seven years before I was born. And, you know, so by the time I got, you know, to, into Hammer, they had already waned, uh, you know, but reading up on that, we might not have had that legacy of Hammer if they weren't uh, afforded the respect, you know, they they were due, I think, in the late 60s. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've heard people, you know, make some commentary that Hammer was a huge part, very, very instrumental in keeping the entire film industry, you know, afloat uh, during, you know, their heyday in the United Kingdom. And yeah. it's, you know, because, you know, things weren't so great. So, you know, as far as the economy and stuff like that, so... I mean, you know, like I said, you know, you got people who are just detractors of anything that's, you know, you know, a little bit, you know, B movie, lower budget, you yeah. know. But uh, I'll tell you what, it's it's still good stuff. I just the things they did with a, a very meager budget, you know, to me, yeah, the practi- they put out some really good stuff. Yeah, you're right, Billy. The practical effects in Hammer films are the best for me. I just love them. I mean, uh, other than the 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 stuff you saw in the '80s, you know, and and the early Guillermo del Toro stuff in the '90s. The practical effects from Hammer for, for for its time was groundbreaking. I think you know the they're so well known for the the blood spurting out and and looking all fake, but that's the distinctive Hammer look. You know that you just want to see, and and also you know up before Hammer, all you know horror movies were black and white, and then you know mm-hmm. with with Frankenstein, you know the, the 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 one starring Christopher Lee, the first Frankenstein that Hammer did, they it was in color, and that yep. was. Um, I think enhanced the horror at least, you know, from my For perspective, sure. because suddenly you, you saw blood, you saw the color of blood. Had you ever seen that before in, in Hollywood films? I don't think, uh, I mean, I, might I be don't wrong. believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe so. Yeah. No, I'm particularly thinking about that, you know, when, when he was shot in the eye, you know, the Frankenstein yes. monster. And you remember oh, the, yes. the blood just pulling yep. through his fingers. Oh man, that was the <laughs> reddest red I had ever seen. <laughs> and as a kid, yep. that was very disturbing, but also you can't turn away. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well done, Hammer, for everything they've done for horror. 
Absolutely. If they deserve all the credit they get, and like, to me, they should get even more, you know, but it's just, I don't know. I guess things are what they are. It seems like, you know, the, the, the niche people like us that are just uh, old school horror people will give them all the credit in the world, but it doesn't seem like, you know, the mainstreamers ever will, but eh, you know, they're, they're, they're missing out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Um, okay, so at this point, I'm probably going to just, let me see, I'm probably going to fire off the trailer here, and then uh, when we get back from that, then you and I will start talking about the movie. Great, Billy, let's do so. No coffin could ever hold him. Dracula is alive. Dracula has risen from the grave. Dracula, the most fearsome name in any language. The most feared being ever to haunt the living. There is a girl. Maria? Bring her to me. During the hours of darkness, she must never be left alone. Bring her to me! Christopher Lee, Rupert Davis, Veronica Carlson, Hammer's new star discovery, Dracula's most beautiful victim. Dracula has risen from the grave. To resist him is useless. To rise against him is futile. To know him is eternal damnation. Dracula has risen from the grave. Okay, and we're back. Um, okay, so why don't I do a quick synopsis, and then uh, we'll talk about the movie a little bit more specifically, what we thought about it. Is that okay, Herman? Yeah, sounds fine. Let's do it. Okay, fantastic. All right, so... The story begins with a boy and a priest making a grisly discovery in the church. Dracula has apparently killed a young woman and strung her up inside the church bell in the tower. Seasons pass, and a year later, the Monsignor from Kynenberg visits to see how things are going. He finds the church empty and the priest drinking at the pub. After the townspeople explain that the reason no one goes to church is because of the shadows in Dracula's castle, touching the church, 
they even exclaimed to the Monsignor that you can feel the evil. The two holy men agree to go to the castle the next day with the priest showing much fear. The next day they both ascend the mountain, <clears throat> but the priest is so frightened he can't go all the way up. The Monsignor tells him he can wait there and finishes the climb. He then reads the prayer of exorcism and bars the door with a cross. As a terrible thunderstorm rages, the priest falls down the mountainside, busting open his head. He bleeds profusely and also cracks open the frozen tomb that has kept the count on ice for a year. The blood from the priest seeps in and reanimates Count Dracula. The Count immediately mind-controls the weak priest and finds his castle has been tainted by the Monsignor. Meanwhile, the Monsignor returns home to Kynenberg, and Dracula follows with the enthralled priest to get his revenge. Now, back in Kynenberg, we meet Anna, the widowed sister-in-law of the Monsignor. Next, the, the scene switches to the cafe, where we meet Paul, the owner, Max, and barmaid, Zena. As Paul gets ready for his date shows up, the beautiful Maria. They go to dinner at Maria's home, but things don't go well when he mentions to the Monsignor that he is an atheist. Later, as Zena is on her way home, after the tavern has closed, she's chased by a carriage driven by the priest, and as she goes deeper into the forest, she runs into Count Dracula. Okay, now Herman, I'm going to stop there just because things really move fast after that point, And there are a few deaths that we can talk about when we talk about our likes and dislikes here. But uh, I want to save that for you and I when hmm. we specifically talk about the movie, you know, moving on from that point. So uh, what should you think? Yeah, Billy, um, I, I agree with you. You know, we don't um, want to give away too much now because we're just going to be repeating ourselves later on when we discuss later events. But um, yeah, up until the point that Dracula reaches <coughs> Kynenberg, you know, things were moving slowly, but it gave you enough to, to make you feel the, the ominous aspect of where the story's heading. So um, they, they set that up beautifully. Freddie Francis did a good job, I think. Uh, Terence Fisher might have done it better, who knows, but... Um, I thought it was great. And, um, you know, uh, everything about the synopsis that you mentioned, um, the setup is quite unique, I think, you know, with, with Dracula seeking revenge on a priest who barred him from entering his own castle with a, <laughs> with a giant golden cross. <laughs> you know, isn't that... I've never... I mean, I would never have come up with that storyline myself. <laughs> you know and i do always speculate how could i have made this movie better but i can't think of any way to set up the, the the start of this film better than that i mean dracula you can really see the fury on christopher lee's face when he commands his newest servant the priest to to um head up there and let him enter his castle but it just it won't happen because there's this giant cross <laughs> locking his gate so you know that part is Great. And then, obviously, you introduce to the characters of Paul, who works at this uh, bakery slash tavern slash inn. <laughs> and Zena, the barmaid, who's got a thing for Paul, but it's not reciprocated because Paul's in love with Maria, who's this higher upper, uh, this upper class uh, girl. And like you say, he goes over to meet the girl's family, who in turn, it turns out that her uncle is, in fact, the priest. Um Monsignor, I should say, the Monsignor mm -hmm. who barred Dracula from entering his castle. So that's how 
how they connect. And Dracula immediately zeroes in on this family to get his revenge. He's not just going to uh, kill them on senior. He's also going to, uh, you know, take away his beloved niece, which is Maria. And you, you get to meet Paul, who's quite quite an interesting fellow. He's obviously very intelligent. He wants to make something of, of himself. He's ambitious. He doesn't just want to be a baker. Um, and then you meet Zena, who's sort of, you know, content with being a barmaid, but she wants something more, and she thinks she finds that, which we're going to mention <laughs> just now. But before we get into the events uh, leading up to what happened after Zena met Dracula, um, Billy, I, I love the use of Dracula's hypnotic ability his mind control power in this film it's frightening what do you think mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i tell you don't didn't they say i think they use some special effects where they would put like you know special contact lenses in uh, christopher lee's eyes and they were quite like bothersome to him if i remember correctly reading yes. some interviews and things like that but it, it looks great i mean it, i'm sure it bothered him a lot but it was worth what you know, came onto the screen then because it was great. And like you said, it's frightening. And I want to talk to you too, Herman. What are your thoughts? I think Hammer really, you figure for the 1960s, they really went out on a limb here with um, kind of, you know, a, a Dracula, you know, this, uh, this, this satanic, uh, you know, boogeyman, uh, mind controlling a priest and making a yes. priest do some pretty horrible things. Yes. You know, I, I yeah. they really did. And then having Paul say he's the, an atheist and things like that, I, I really felt they, they went out on a limb a little bit, you know, with this one. You know, not too crazy, but pretty far out for the 60s still. No, I agree with you. But I think this is, this was their, you know, this ties into the overall theme of the movie because I think the entire film is a manifesto against atheism <laughs> because you know if you think about it you have a priest who's lost his faith which could mm -hmm. reflect a sign of the times you know um people in the 60s you know the moon landing <laughs> 1960 mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1960s and you know people are are starting to explore space they're they're more faith in science and so forth and then you've got hammer who focuses on traditional horrors but but does it in a new way but still uses the rural setting of England uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. So I think at one point in time we see a grave, right, Billy? And the, the, the mm -hmm. date of, of, of death on the grave is 1907 or something. So this movie is definitely set in yeah. the early 20th century um, mm -hmm. where religion was unquestioned. But, you know, obviously in the 60s when this was released, you know, there were people starting to question religion. So I think this was Hammer saying that all those atheists, all those scientists, they're wrong. <laughs> At the end of the day, you know, the, the, the powers of good triumph. God basically triumphs at the end of the day. That's what the whole movie's about. It, it, it follows this arc of this priest who's lost his faith, who's easily mind-controlled by Dracula. But then you've got his opposite, the Monsignor, um, Ernst Muller, who's, who's very strong in his faith. He won't be affected by the forces of darkness. And then you've got this character of Paul, who is an atheist because he reads a lot of books. That's that's even his own words, right? So yeah. I don't I don't like this message, Billy. I mean, even though I love this movie, I don't like that the message it gives because basically, at the end of the day, as we know, the forces of good does triumph. Paul is wrong. Atheism is a lie, and <laughs> you know the, the the prayers said, the incantations or or the chants or what do you call it, the catechism given by the priest, it works. So, yeah, you're right. It was risque, but they sort of went 
back and said at the end of the uh, of the movie, okay, everything ties up nicely. It's all wrapped up in a nice little bow, and the Christians should be happy. <laughs> well, here's how I feel. Yeah. When when you get to the end of the movie, the priest has done some pretty awful things, and in my opinion, there's no way him just. Uh, saying a prayer at the end of the film makes up for what he's done wrong. There's no way. That's just that's not cutting it. Well, Billy, so that's to me. I yeah, know, he's still on a hook. I know what you mean, but that's Catholicism yeah. in a nutshell. I mean, you've got <laughs> serial killers on death row asking for forgiveness, and they're given it. <laughs> that's just sorry. That's a very controversial <laughs> opinion, but you know, yeah, basically well, any any crime can be forgiven if you're seen as penitent. So, yeah. Well, he, two, yeah. What do you think about Paul there at the end, too? See, I always look at that at the very end where he is struggling with Dracula and then Dracula goes over the edge. And I don't care for the scene. I wish it would have just ended there. I don't care for the scene of him blessing himself because there's no way he's going to spend his entire life as an atheist. And then just because what he met a vampire that means you're gonna <laughs> all of a sudden <laughs> all of a sudden he's gonna you know be like oh you know i was wrong i'm catholic now i just i almost feel like when i i think the first time i watched it i felt like maybe he was just doing that uh to to show respect for uh you know the monsignor that had died and towards the priest or something like that but i just thought you know I, there's no way i don't believe it there's yeah. there's no way th th those two things don't add up to me so those are definitely two things that I didn't care for about the film. Other than those two things, I, I'm on board. But those two things, I'm like, yeah, no way. I agree. I agree with you, Billy. Up until the point where, basically, if let's say there's the, this happened in real life to a real atheist, they an atheist encountered a vampire in real life. Uh, what would be the reaction be? The reaction would not be to turn to God. The, uh, I think the, the atheist reaction will be to scientifically try to explain the vampire. How did this creature evolve? You know what I mean? But what yeah. we have in this movie, though, is the mystical aspect of Catholicism where the rites enacted by the priest and the Monsignor actually work. You know, yeah. um, uh, the, you know saying a, uh, a prayer after they lock the gate literally bars Dracula from the castle. Not even the priest can remove, his servant can remove the cross. And later on, you know, when Dracula is impaled by Paul in, in the crypt beneath the inn... <laughs> <laughs> which, which they had there, uh, which wasn't really a crypt. It, it was like an old uh, room set aside for, which had an old oven, right? So for baking. Yeah. But still, I, I, I call it a crypt now, where Paul stakes Dracula. And then Dracula, in fact, does not die because Paul refuses to to say the, the proper rites along with the priest, right? So uh, then later on, when they do have the final confrontation, Dracula is yet again impaled, this time on the cross that Maria hurled off the cliff, which which got stuck in the in the earth, and then Dracula fell on top of it. And then the only thing that that seals Dracula's fate is the fact that Paul recites the rites, you know, the the appropriate uh, catechism. So you know, because of the presence of these mystical elements that that are in front of Paul all the time and that do seem to work, I understand why he then at the end accepts God. You know, but I don't like it because this yeah. this whole thing is like promoting the fact that, you know, uh, you know, the, the one way, the one true way is the Christian faith. And <laughs> you know how I feel about that, Billy. But anyway, the point is, 
um, yeah, the, I also didn't like that aspect. But the fact that Paul did accept, you know, Catholicism at the end, it made sense for me because of all these, you know, mystical rites which was in front of him and, and, and seemed to work, you know, in his eyes at least. Well, I think it's crap. Yeah, <laughs> I think so <laughs> I mean, too. Five, like you said, five, five minutes earlier in the film, they stake him and he's like, you have to pray. And he's like, you're a priest, you pray. He, he doesn't want no part of it. But then five <laughs> minutes later, he's okay with it. Like, uh, I wonder to myself, was that uh, it's actually written out in the script? Like, I wonder with Hammer's films, I'll have to do some investigative uh, reporting here and find out with Hammer, were they, you know, strictly, you know, top to bottom, front to back, go with a script and do not improvise at all. Hmm. And then that would be then, okay, then that would be Anthony Hines uh, who uh, wrote this one. Um, he wrote a lot of Hammer yeah, scripts. That's but right. I'm that's thinking right. to myself, I wonder if that was him. Did he write that? Because I'm thinking to myself, what was he thinking? Like, it's just, that doesn't make sense to me. Or was that something, you know, they got to the end and, you know, Freddie Francis being like, well, you should do this. Because, you know, like you said, you know, times were changing a bit, but... I still feel like, man, I think there was still a pretty heavy influence with the church probably in the United Kingdom at that time. And I, there definitely was still, still over here, too, because, you know, you just had you know, a couple of years later when a film like The Exorcist came out, you know, the churches went you know, berserk about that. Yeah. They, they were like going crazy about that movie, you know, yeah. for yeah. a lot of the stuff that was in there that was very racy. So I just think I wonder if Hammer thought like, yeah, we're going to push the envelope here. But in the end, we're still going to keep it safe and, you know, say good good beats evil. And that's that's the way it's always going to be. I, I find, and I wonder what that was all about. I wonder if that was, you know, Anthony Hines script or if it was, you know, Freddie Francis or maybe like you even said, maybe uh, James uh, Carreras was, yeah. you know, yeah. overseeing things and was like, whoa, hold on here, guys. We, we've got to, you know, we've got to have a, a good win in the end. And then also, you know, we've got to rain it of, in. Uh, yeah, rain it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if that's how it really was, because up until those those couple of little things i think to myself it was going exactly the way i feel like it would because like you said someone who's an atheist their whole life they're not just gonna you know at the snap of a finger is doing about face it's not gonna work like that there's no way it's just yeah. not n n there's no way I, I i don't i that's the only thing in the movie i thought yeah i'm not buying this even yeah. though i'm trying to you know suspend belief <laughs> for a horror film here I, yeah. i'm not buying that well, it was unrealistic, but, you know, the whole movie's unrealistic. But, yeah, I agree that <laughs> the character motivations at the end are definitely questionable. But, you know, Billy, I'm going to be a bit petty here and also just focus on the fight at the end. What, a, I mean, we love this movie. Uh, I just want to say, uh, let the listeners know that this is one of my favorite Dracula movies. But the fight at the end was so disappointing. You know, literally, mm -hmm. you just had Dracula and Paul struggling for a few seconds and then Paul knocks him off the balcony of his castle and he's impaled on yeah. the cross and that whole mm -hmm. that whole battle was uh choreographed to eventually i mean you could see it coming it was predictable because mm -hmm. the cross was shown as standing with the sharp end up in the ground and you know you just knew that was how he's going to get impaled and and it happened yep. so quickly how can a guy like paul overpower dracula who's got supernatural strength who's displayed his mm -hmm. supernatural strength numerous times in the film up until this point and then you know he quickly just stumbles <laughs> clumsiness of the undead <laughs> he just well you know what hold on i, I can explain it okay if you go back and watch the movie when you get to that point where they're struggling yeah if you freeze frame right as they're struggling by the edge if you look down on the ground you'll notice a banana peel there and that's what Dracula <laughs> tripped 
conveniently tossed there by a higher power. <laughs> it just it just came down from the sky. A banana peel. <laughs> <Just> safe, <laughs> Listeners, the, there isn't a banana uh, peel. Don't go turn on your your <laughs> DVD players and freeze frames and looking for that banana peel. <laughs> Well, you never know. There might be just like the, uh, the 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 coffee cup in Game of Thrones. There might be a banana peel left on the set by someone. Definitely, might have tripped over an errant water bottle. <laughs> oh oh my man, gosh. that's funny. That's great, Billy. No, no, yeah, that that part didn't make sense, and it also disappointed me, you know. But everything leading up until that that point, I loved. I mean, there's some great scenes of horror in this movie, Billy. Um, every time they enter a crypt to sta- stake Christopher Lee you know that shit's going to go down. You know there's going to be something that some some spanner in the works that's going to happen that's going to cause uh you know unimaginable horror to ensue. And that's what in fact happened twice in this movie, you know. Um the first time when Zena enters the crypt to report, you know, to 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 lure Maria and in fact she did, you know, kidnap Maria to to present her to Count Dracula. That scene was frightening. Mm-hmm. And then she yeah. ultimately fails and then Dracula enacts his revenge on her or I should say punishment for yeah. Zena's failure. And that was horrific. Uh and then, you know, the scene where before that where Zena was chased down by the horse carriage. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when they tried to I don't know, break her will or or you know, through sheer terror but basically, I scared the bejeebus out of her before, you know, finally she, she takes a rest against the tree trunk and then Dracula shows up and mind controls yep. her and then snacks on her neck. So, you know, mm-hmm. but the, the, the terror that I felt in those scenes was real. And then, of course, uh, the, fa- the, the eventual death of Xena is quite horrific, right, Billy? Oh, my gosh. It's awful. Yeah, she literally, I mean, she goes into this rant where she's, because she's at this point in time totally mind controlled by Dracula, but also she's sort of in love with him at this point in time because of his, you know, uh, supernaturally good looks. And she's saying, why, why do you want Maria? I should be enough for, for you. And at that point in time, you just see it in Dracula's face, right? You see it in Christopher Lee's eyes. I, oh man, my mind control has gone way overboard here. This this needs to stop now. I've created a stalker <laughs> out of one of my <laughs> acolytes and he just decides, okay, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and then he does so. He drains her of blood and he asks the priest to dispose of her in the giant oven <laughs> where he stuffs her remains in. That is horrific, Billy. Yeah, that was a pretty wild scene. Uh, having Xena... Uh, bitten killed and then the uh, mind-controlled priest tossing her into the oven (laughs) that was nasty i couldn't believe that was the first time i saw this movie i was like i can't believe they just did that like for 1968 that was pretty wild but yeah he was dracula was really he was rough in this one on both xena and then even maria as well but then showed a little bit of compassion at the end which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me with maria uh, picking her up and carrying her through the woods instead of making her walk (laughs) yeah no no good points billy i agree this this movie was brutal brutal in you know how Uh dracula treated his victims even even the 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 very first scene in the church where we first realized there's a curse on the church when the altar boy i think he is finds the Uh the woman dangling in the bell in the bell tower of the church yeah Wow, that that was horrific, and you've got that distinctive bright hammer 
paint like blood dripping down from the bell tower rope and then that's how the boy notices it horror upon horror in this movie that you know you can only find in a hammer film i think i mean this is not your cgi horror from from movies like it uh you know the newest it and and stuff like that no way this is pure you know realistic <laughs> even though it's not you know um uh, practical effects yeah, I and honestly, that's uh, I'm way way fine with that. I like that route better than uh, CGI. I'm not a big CGI guy for much of anything. You know, some newer movies that are science fiction and stuff like that, and sometimes you have to use that stuff. But overall, I'll take the practical effects any day of the week. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think Dracula had some real competition in this movie. You know, in terms of the Monsignor, he's an older guy. You know, but and yet he seems to do his own stunts because there's the scene where he literally chases Dracula across the rooftops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I was surprised because he's obviously in his what early seventies or late sixties at least. Yeah, at least in his sixties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he scales the face of a mountain in the beginning in order to access Dracula's uh, castle balcony so that he could bar the gates. Uh, with the giant golden cross on his back. This guy is a force <laughs> to be reckoned with. I mean, he's no Cushing, but he's close. Yeah, yeah, he definitely is. Okay, so it looks like uh, he was in his late 50s oh, okay. when they uh, made this film. Apologies. But still, that's, 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 no, that's no spring chicken there. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I apologize to uh, Ernst Muller's character. Rupert Davies, I'm sorry, man. You, you, you look great. <laughs> you looked so, great. What about uh, our buddy Michael Ripper? I thought this was a really good... I mean, it wasn't one of his better, like, bigger roles in a Hammer film, but it's one that he played most, but I thought he was great. I thought he, you know, he always, to me, brings, like, humor or compassion or something. He's he's a very good actor. I mean, I think he's very underrated, and he always brings something to the table every time he's in a Hammer movie. What do you think? I agree. Well, just because of the sheer number of roles that he's played in Hammer movies, you've got to love him. At least that's my uh, viewpoint, Billy, because I've seen him so many times on screen. He's portrayed so many different kinds of roles. And like you say, he works best in a comedic role. But sometimes when he drops some ominous knowledge on you, some some scary, you know, information you the characters might need, it, it really hits home. So he's, he's good at delivering, you know, uh, he's good with delivery. Um, and he's an arresting kind of uh, guy, even though he's small in stature, I think. But in this movie, he plays a kind of avuncular role. Um, he's sort of a father figure to the character of Paul. And mm-hmm. um, I, he inserts a lot of humor. You know, they have this witty banter back and forth between him and Paul where he's like saying, oh, you, you want to make something of yourself. You want to go out in the wider world. You, you don't want to be a lowly baker like me, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I like that. I like the fact that they, in a horror movie, inject some humor because, like I say, that makes the eventual horrific events so much more palpable when they do happen because you've, you've gotten to like these people. And uh, Michael yep. Ripper is one of the reasons. You know, whether it's him and Paul or him and Xena uh, talking back and forth, you know, it's it's great. So, yeah, very small role. But, um, I mean, it suits the character that he played, that he wouldn't have had a bigger, um, you know, role in events. So, um, yeah, for, two thumbs up. For me, yeah, he's gotten 
I mean, so like I said, sometimes these little tiny bit parts and other times the roles are a little bigger. But uh, 1962, The Pirates of Blood River, great one with uh, him and oh, uh, yeah. Christopher Lee or uh, Captain Clegg. Another good one with, uh, you know, Peter Cushing, another yeah. good role there. He, he's he's had those. some some good ones. Yeah, for sure. He's he's always I don't know. To me, I'm never disappointed when he's in a movie. Plague of the Zombies, The Reptile. Yeah, he's been in so many good Hammer films. It's just. Yeah, I, I think love as an actor, he's just so reliable. You know, the director mm-hmm. can't help but cast him, you know, even in smaller roles. Yeah. You know, um, uh, but but bigger roles were the ones that, I, of course, I enjoyed more. But yeah, you're right. He's so ubiquitous almost in the 60s, uh, of uh, at least in Hammer films, that, you know, I, I love him. He's one of those um, pleasant faces you see when you, you see him in a movie. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, Michael Ripper's back. This is going to be good. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, for me, there weren't too many weak points in this movie. We talked about a couple of them already, but one of them was for me for sure. I didn't, and this was, you know, all Freddie Francis because he was trying some experimental things, you know, with camera work. Mm. One thing I didn't care for was when it would show Dracula or his castle, there would be like this amber and red lens effect around the corners, you know, the edges of the screen. And I didn't really care for that. I don't really feel like it added anything to it at all. You know, I don't know what he was going for there, but it just, I don't know. It didn't mm. do anything for me. Well, uh, Billy, um, uh, good on you for noticing that because I think I only noticed that after I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago when we discussed, you know, talking about this movie and you, you told me about this mm-hmm. effect, I didn't really even notice this the first couple of times that I watched this film. Uh, I should yeah. I should hone my critical eye a bit better, <laughs> you know. But um, uh, good on you for noticing that because I did see that, and that's definitely old Francis. And yeah, it didn't work. It didn't work. It just it just looked too artificial, and um, it didn't look uh, you know appropriate for a Hammer film. It's not something I would associate with ham- Hammer scenery or set design that they normally have. So I agree with yeah. you. It looks tacky and and. You know, lower, very, very low budget, way below Hammer's budget, even though they already had low budget. So I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I think we can both agree some good casting here and definitely some uh, really good performances here. You know, Lee, scary as ever, and Rupert Davies and Veronica Carlson, you know, even Barbara Ewing as the, uh, as the, <laughs> the, alluring, the barmaid. <laughs> alluring Xena. Wow. She is very sexy. And that's a nice juxtaposition between her. And the sort of um, conservative beauty of Veronica mm-hmm. Carlson's character. I like the fact that, you know, uh, Paul had these two ladies in his life. Uh, but eventually, mm-hmm. obviously, he chose Veronica Carlson because that's the love of his life, uh, Maria. But, you know, Zena, she tried to get her claws into him early on. <laughs> and then she would have gotten her claws into me, I'm sure. She's <laughs> very attractive. But... You know, um, uh, I'm very sad on how, you know, what happened to Xena eventually. She was a great character. And Barbara Ewing is a great actress. You know, like you say, the mm-hmm. whole this whole cast is gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing missing was Cushing. <laughs> yeah, really, you're right. You're not kidding. I mean, it's just, I don't know. They did a great job casting this one and just, I don't know. I could, like I said, yeah, it's got a couple little problems here and there, but I could watch this one over and over. But how about the scenes at the pub? To me, they oh. were, you know, it's it's a horror movie, but they, they were they added just enough yeah. humor and, and just, you know, fun scenes there and funny scenes there that just uh, I, I enjoyed them. I loved them. Those are 
those are great scenes. Well, so that, some of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, well, that's another juxtaposition that was placed in the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had the juxtaposition between the two priests, you know, the priest who, who was mind-controlled and the Monsignor who was not, who's strong. And then you've got the pub in the, the small town near Dracula's castle, which is all morbid and everybody's uh, brooding and sad because they're under a curse. And you can really feel that atmosphere in that pub. And then you've got the boisterous pub life of Kynenberg, which is the pub that where, you know, Paul lives and run by Max, uh, Michael Ripper's character. And, you know, <laughs> these two, these, you know, two different worlds that are presented are done really well because it sort of makes you emotionally invested, you know, between, oh, you've just seen what happens when Dracula does affect a place. And now you're in this happy place of Kynenberg and Dracula is going to come and that's going to destroy all this, this pleasantry and, you know, good cheer. Um, you know, so I think that that might have been Freddie Francis. It might have been the cinematography. Uh, who knows? But um, I, I, I agree, Billy. That's a very good uh, observation that, the, you know, you really feel the difference between, you know, how it is in the pub in, in the beginning and later on. And yeah, no, I, I um, enjoyed the, the sets, you know, the, the rooftop sets were great and uh-huh. the pub sets were amazing and the crypt scenes and, and even, I mean, the, the, the scenes in the countryside when, you know, like I said, Zeno was chased down by the priest in ja- Dracula's carriage and, and, and earlier on when the priest exhumed a body in order to get a coffin <laughs> for Dracula and just dumped this girl out who might have been the girl from the bell tower. You never know. I mean... Uh, who who knows? Okay, her corpse was was fresh, so, so it might not have been her because that was a year earlier. But still, you know that was a horrific scene. Oh, oh yeah, that man. scene is hilarious because if you watch Dracula's face, like it, the the shot shows the priest rolling the body out or like getting the getting the casket out, and it zooms in on Dracula's face, and he has this big smirk on his face, yeah. and then after the priest dumps the body out. And the priest looks towards him. He, he immediately wipes the smirk off his face and then just motions with his head like, you know, get yeah. the get the casket into the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was that was brilliant. I mean, one thing we forgot to talk about, Billy, is Dracula's resurrection scene right after oh, yeah. the, the two priests were on the mountain and the mm-hmm. Monsignor sealed the castle. And then the cowardly priest, who, who's never given a name. Uh, he runs away from the lightning and the weather effects and so forth and then he stumbles and hits his head and the blood from the head wound seeps into the ice which had heretofore encased Dracula which was if uh, you Hammer fans remember in the previous Dracula film Dracula Prince of Darkness Dracula had uh, been well he was fighting on the ice and then um, the ice was shot out from under him you know on a frozen river and then he he fell into the water and he was frozen and that's why when the ice cracked, um, uh, you know, here in this movie, in the beginning, the blood from the priest revived him. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I like that. I, I don't know. What do you think? As, as re- Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as yeah re- I was fine with that. I mean, I, I don't really love the ending to that previous film that you talked about, but I like how they got around that for the resurrection in this film. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I love... The, the the resurrection scenes of Dracula more than I do his death scenes in, in all Hammer mm-hmm. films, except for maybe the first yeah. Dracula. 
where where Cushing just leaps over the table acrobatically and pulls the curtains aside, and <laughs> and then Dracula yeah. is slowly and incrementally, uh, basically blasted by the sun. You know, body part yeah. by body part. <laughs> that was, and you just see this shot of his leg and it's ash, and then his hand and it's ash. <laughs> that was a horrible death. I love that death scene, but all other subsequent death scenes of Dracula in Hammer. I, I didn't like, but the, res, the resurrection scenes are always gold. Like, how are they going to resurrect him this time? Yeah, I totally agree with you there. That first one was definitely the best of the bunch. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So overall, Billy, I think one of my favorite Hammer films, I, I, I must admit. I mean, I've watched it countless times. I can't even tell you how many times I've watched it. And every time, I just enjoy it more and more. It's, it never gets old. Yep, I'm right there with you. I mean, I think this one gets two thumbs up from you and I here, you know, yeah, it's got its issues and things you can kind of pick apart a little bit, but overall you're going to be entertained watching this one. And there's, there's rewatchability here on this one as well. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap things up here in a minute and I'll be right back. Take care. Okay, we're back. Um, I just wanted to quickly thank Herman for joining me on this first episode and just to let him know and, of course, you listeners know that you definitely will be hearing his voice again, probably on a Hammer film, but maybe another one uh, from another studio too because Herman also has a love for Amicus as well. So uh, I think I'm going to exploit that uh, love of his as well to get him on for an Amicus film. <laughs> oh, please do, Billy. Please do. I love me some Amicus. So I'll be ready anytime you, you are. Thanks, Herman. I really appreciate you being on, buddy. This is a, a pleasure to have you on. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome, Billy. Thanks, man. Okay. And I'll be right back after another break to close things out. Okay, that wraps up episode one. I hope you all enjoy it. As always, you can send feedback to me uh, on Twitter, at BillyD underscore Licious, uh, and look for Herman at Dark Longbox as well. I'd like to thank him again for his being a guest and all of his uh, tremendous help putting this together. Look for a few mini-sodes over the next few weeks and then another special guest for episode number two. And for those of you listening on Anchor, you'll be taken out by Strange Brew by Cream. Catch you next time.